Hi, Soph. Hi, Liv. Hey. Okay, so today we have a very special episode because I am interviewing my one and only little sister, Soph, Sophia Winkowicz. Um, she is two and a half years younger than me. She's my oldest friend. We weren't friends our whole life. We, <laughs> we fought a lot growing up, but um, it's been fun to see how really at every point in life, we've had each other's backs and um, we've both been quite radicalized recently. So it's kind of fun to bond over that. Um, and we've become pretty good friends. So thank you so much for being willing to talk with me today. Thanks for asking me. I'm excited. Good. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really fun to hear your sweeping perspective instead of just living it alongside you. Um, and I also know that because some very big pieces of our lives happened at different ages, I think that they affected us differently. So even though I think there'll be a lot of overlap between your episode and mine, I think there are going to be some very distinct differences. And also you and I are wildly different. So <laughs> even, though, even though we have very similar core values, um, we live them out in very different ways. So um, yeah, I think it'll be fun for people to hear, hopefully. Um, do you have any context you would like to add for yourself before we get into the religious and spiritual side? Um, super passionate about environmental stuff. And so I'm able to produce like sustainable food here with what I do. Yeah, it's really cool, but also very different from what I do because I live in LA. So it's always fun to visit you and see how different your life is. Um, yeah, so yeah, paint the picture for me of what it was like for you growing up. Yeah, um, I never really felt like a kid. <laughs> Uh, I remember being like four or five and interacting with like high schoolers um, in mom and dad's ministry and just being like, why don't they talk like adults? <laughs> and mm. like having to use smaller vocabulary or whatever, just because I had ever since I can remember interacted with mom and dad as an adult and then been expected to interact with adults and meet them where they're at instead of me stay being a kid and like it being acceptable to be whoever I was mm. um <laughs> so that was kind of weird I don't know I otherwise like I always considered myself as a to be like a peer of everyone and tried to be the best me which was the version that mom and dad and the community around us kind of painted me to be so <laughs> what would that look like the very best version of what mom and dad would want always sweet <laughs> never <laughs> argumentative um never problematic um respecting people on not the um human level but on the authority level mm. pretty much always I, like I could I was allowed to like question authority for myself but I wasn't allowed to be like problematic in it it felt like problematic um, being like aggressive yeah like abrasive or like stand up for myself or whatever like I could be like yeah like they're not in charge of me or whatever and move on for myself, but I wasn't, wasn't able to like have confrontation like ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was a very non-confrontational childhood. And I, I took that on very personally as like the peacekeeper of our family and of friend groups and of just random people. Um, and so that's been like a longstanding thing. I don't know. I, felt as a child, you know, I, I felt very grown up and independent and stuff, but I felt like I was able to like roam free and learn things and do things and teach. And I never really 
questioned like if people would listen to me. <laughs> mm. I I did always think that people would listen to me. Um, and I think that's been kind of hard as an adult to realize that like people aren't going to listen to me. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of weird, but. Yeah, I can definitely agree that that's, that's how you were. Um, <laughs> what type of environment was our childhood for you spiritually? Structured in a very non-traditional way, I guess. Mm-hmm. We went to a local Baptist church for our first few, our first years. And then um, as things go, churches had some <laughs> um, issues with authority and we ended up not attending church on the regular. And so it was a very like non-traditional Christianity growing up because we, we didn't attend church on Sundays, but it was still very like, this is what we believe. This is why, like, this is what we do. And it felt very like, if there was a church around that we agreed with wholeheartedly, we would for sure like go all the time and like sit there and go with their authority and stuff. And so like for me, I never really like questioned what I believed other, other than like, why, like, why does it differ than what my peers believe or whatever? Like I would think about the, the specifics and try and figure out some of that, but I never really questioned like, is the Christian God what I really do believe? Because it was just like, well, obviously, you know, and I had a very, um, I guess I'd say like spiritually active childhood in the sense of like, I felt God around me and I saw his actions and, you know, dealt with spiritual warfare and all of that. And so it just kind of fit neatly into the box of how we grew up. And so I never really questioned it. Um, but yeah. What do you mean by spiritual warfare? (laughs) That's, a good clarification. Um, now I'm questioning all of that too. Um, (laughs) feelings of good and evil. And I know all of that's really subjective and also influenced by like those who are around you. Um, but seeing a lot of people really struggle with abuse and self-control and all that kind of stuff. And just like seeing darkness and being like, Oh, it's evil spirits. Um, when maybe in reality it is, maybe in reality it's human, maybe in reality it's happenstance, but everything felt very, very real to me, even personally dealing with, like, thinking that I was possessed as, like, a, I don't even know, 12-year-old kid or something like that, and trying to deal with that and figuring out, you know, how to deal with, to deal with what was, framed as spiritual warfare within myself Mm -hmm. um when honestly it was me being a human and being a kid (laughs) what was it like for you having parents in ministry it was pretty hard um I personally framed it very much as our family being in ministry and so I never really thought of like oh mom and dad have this like huge difficult job it was we all do this together and like yes I'm I'm a child missionary (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I didn't think of myself as a missionary kid I thought of myself as a child missionary and like a missionary to my peers and all of that and so that really influenced how I interacted with my peers and how I interacted with those around me I was telling my friend the other day I feel more like I'm a middle child (laughs) Like it was just the two of us, but I relate very strongly to people who grew up in huge families and who had to like fight for attention and fight for food and who felt very ignored um, and all of that kind of stuff just because mom and dad poured so much of their heart into their ministry, their heart, their time, their resources, everything like that. And the way I framed it as as a child was I was doing the same. And so I wasn't bitter 
I don't think I'd call myself bitter now, but looking back, I'm just realizing how much I missed out on and how much I really was kind of like the middle child of our, of our family, just because mom and dad poured so much into all of the kids around us. And really like, because we were fine, didn't really focus on us. Yeah. I mean, just to jump in a little bit, I feel like oftentimes we weren't fine. Um, but (laughs) I personally, at least really felt the pressure to be fine. Not really from mom and dad, but from guilt, I guess, because anytime I wasn't fine, I was taken away from the community. Yeah. Like we were there to serve them. And anytime that we took resources, then we were hindering the calling, um, of mom and dad into ministry and harming the community and all of that. And, and yeah, I feel the same. I felt like I had to be fine for everyone else. And particularly when, um, particularly when the, the drowning in the community happened and everyone needed support, I wasn't fine, but I became intentionally the person that people could lean on. Mm -hmm. Um, I still do that as like a coping mechanism. I'm like, yeah, I'm not fine right now, but like, I'm here for you. And that makes it easier for me to deal because I can just ignore my own problems. And so like, that's something that I'm really trying to unlearn because I know that I need to take care of myself. But I think that's been like a long-term effect of growing up in ministry. It's like, it's easier for me if I'm not thinking about myself, if I'm just thinking about what everybody else needs. Where do you think we learn that from? <laughs> um, I think mom and dad both do it in their own way. I know like, like dad just throws himself into serving everyone like physically, like he'll go out and do things for them and ignore like the problems that he can't address with his own home or anything like that. Or if there's any kind of conflict, he'll go out and do things instead and, and repress it. And I think mom does that very emotionally. And um, if she's having problems, she'll just suppress them and address whatever everyone else around her needs. Mm. I know it like comes from ministry too, but I think both of them do that in a ministry setting. So I think that's kind of where we learned it. What kind of expectations do you feel like you had that your peers didn't have? Not our immediate community, but the community that support mom and dad's ministry had a lot of expectations for us to be, for me to be. <laughs> I don't want to speak for you too, but like a, a good investment. Mm. And so I felt like I had to be like the perfect kid and never cause problems and um, be a good support system for mom and dad just so that their ministry would be successful. Um, I really held myself to a really high standard because I hate messing up. I have a, a really internalized fear of messing up, I guess, of like, being a failure. (laughs) And so I know like a lot of people have that, but I think part of mine came from, came from the religious side of things of like being, I remember straight up telling myself, like, I want to be a living example of what your life can be like with Christ in it. Mm. And so I felt like I had to be perfect in a lot of ways and just be happy and be fine and be strong and never have anger and always have joy and peace and all the fruits of the spirit. And like, I really struggled with like self-control and anger, um, all of that. But I like looking back, I'm like, I was just a kid and I was just human, but those were expectations that I had set for myself and that some of them like came from others. And I think as the ministry grew and as the ministry grew older, those expectations kind of spread and then the community had them for me as well. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I don't know when I at least felt when I didn't meet those expectations, people were kind of like, ha, gotcha. 
and it felt yeah felt terrible yeah and it felt like yeah like like disregarding everything mom and dad do and everything we had tried to do our whole childhood and then if we mess up and people were like see you're not perfect it's like no humans aren't but also I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. like yeah it was a very wild ride I guess <laughs> do you remember any specific examples of like any specific stories of turning points in your spiritual life growing up um I remember a few when I was like four or five you and I were like playing house or something and I was trying to be a cool teenager (laughs) and we were talking and I was just like talking about peer pressure and how I had been pressured into saying oh my god and I did Mm -hmm. and you know like we were just talking and I was like because I was like I'm so cool and mom I don't remember if you told mom or if she overheard and she sat me down. We were we went upstairs into her bedroom, which was like a big deal. <laughs> it was like a whole different space of the house. It was a big thing. Um, we were up in her bedroom, sitting in the little windowsill or like window seat, and she like talked to me about faith and how it's not okay to use God's name in vain and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like I knew all of this. I was already tired of it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, I know. Like, okay, what, let's get on with it. And, um, and of course, like, I was sorry. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know that I should be better and that that's not allowed and that that's not good. And it makes God sad and all this stuff. And, and then I like recommitted my faith as like a five or six year old, because I had committed my faith as like a two or three year old previously. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so like, that was, I think that was like a, not like a turning point, but I think that part that could feed into the like need to never mess up or I would have to like recommit my faith. Mm. And like, throughout all of growing up, then every time I would mess up, I would be like, I have to like apologize to God and recommit and figure out a new like goal in my spirituality. Mm. So like every once in a while I would, I'd be like, okay, I'm really struggling with anger. So I'm going to like wear this locket that will remind me to like ask for peace and like not be angry and not act on that anger. Um, and so, like, I, I continually, like, had days where I would just be, like, okay, I'm starting fresh today and doing this again and really committing this time and really going to go for it this time and try and be who I'm supposed to be, according to God. And so, like, that happened throughout, like, all the way up into college. Otherwise, like, real turning points were... Going into eighth grade, I was a cabin leader for like five third grade girls. <laughs> um, and that was really hard. Um, I, I was pretty un- under, not underprepared, but like, it's hard to take care of five third grade girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I remember that like, that taught me my weaknesses more and framing it then made me rely on God. And so my prayer life got a lot stronger in that week and in the like summers following. Um, And just like, it made me more intentional about being a good role model and being a support system for people Um, but it also made me kind of question some things of like, is this really what I like want to be teaching these girls? Like I, that summer kind of picked, like, I have an honesty policy where if 
somebody that I'm mentoring like asks me a question, I'm going to answer it as honestly as I can, as long as it's not harmful for them. And so like that, that really pushed me to figure out what I believed and why, but I still kept it within the Christianity context, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. How was dating viewed by you (laughs) (laughs) growing up and then by the expectations around you? (laughs) Um, Well, we'll go with viewed by me. (laughs) I knew that like based on family rules I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16 um but I created this like fantasy world in my head where I was gonna meet the perfect guy when I was like 14 or 15 and he'd be like oh I'll wait for you and have like a cute date planned for my 16th birthday when we could finally date I had that too Well, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, my 16th birthday was supposed to be like the coolest thing ever because I was finally mm-hmm. gonna be like in love, but that didn't yeah. work out. Yeah, it was unfortunate. It was like it didn't work. <laughs> um yeah, so that's kind of how I viewed dating. I like I really wanted to be in love. Um I remember thinking PDA was really gross. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and being like no <laughs> no thanks on any of that and like being pretty judgmental of couples even though I really wanted to be in love um and then within the context of like growing up I just never it was very very rare to see a couple that was like positively viewed within like the Christian community or like within our family um, just because it was like never the right choice. And so like, as I got older, like after, like in my teens, I started just being like, nah, like relationships are dumb and like, it's not worth it. And it's better to just be single and whatever. And so like, like I didn't date, in high school at all. Um, I had a few opportunities I could have. Um, you always joked about the lost boys who liked <laughs> me. Um, but I never found somebody that I liked that mom and dad would also like. And so I was just like, no, it's not. Like I knew that whoever I chose to date would need to be like approved, like pre-approved or whatever. Yeah. And so like, anyone that I liked, they wouldn't. So I, I like never gave it a shot. Um, or I like would intentionally, maybe not intentionally, maybe subconsciously, <laughs> but I'd like get crushes on people who would like never like me back because mm-hmm. it was just easier. Um, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> what kind of person do you think mom and dad would have approved of? Um, that's so hard. <laughs> um, I've been like trying to think about that a lot, just trying to, to answer for myself, like who would they like? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think someone who had very conservative values, um, who takes like leadership pretty seriously. I think they want like a classic conservative Christian guy who like, reads the Bible all the time and never swears and would never get a tattoo or drink alcohol or whatever. I think that that would be someone that they would like really like. And I think about like my exes and of the people that I have dated, the one that they like actually liked gave that impression even though it wasn't who he actually was. Um, that's very much the impression that he gave um, to them and they still like him to this day, <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, how did you decide where to go to college? <laughs> um, I wanted to go to a liberal arts school because I really valued diversified education. Um, 
and I wanted to study sustainable agriculture. And so that, like those two alone really narrowed my choices. <laughs> um, and I wanted to study somewhere that had an active learning component. So that brought me to a, like two schools. Yeah. <laughs> and one was Albion College in downstate Michigan. And it was like a sustainability major with a focus in agriculture and Berea College in Kentucky, and that was an agriculture major, agriculture and natural resources major with a minor in sustainability and environmental studies. And so I was like, well, I'll apply for both. Um, I spent my entire senior year trying to apply for scholarships and all of this stuff for Albion because I really, really wanted to go there. And it just ended up being, I think it was $32,000 more expensive um, for like the whole four years. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting into Berea and it was a work study school. So it was a tuition free promise. And so even though I really wanted to go to Albion, um, I went to Berea because we didn't have money. <laughs> and there wasn't any way that I could validate $32,000 of debt for an ag degree when I had another option, mm -hmm. knowing that I was going into a career that I would not get money to pay that back. Yeah. And so I went to Berea and ultimately I think it was the right choice, but it was very much financially based. What was it like for you to for the first time in your life, not be surrounded by an aspect of ministry and to leave the UP? Um, I tried to bring ministry with me. I, it was so much my identity that I landed in, I think a typical freshman dorm. <laughs> um, I felt like it was surrounded by hooligans and ruffians. <laughs> Um, and I loved them dearly because I was taught to love. And I, I think that's one of the benefits of our childhood is it's easy for me to love anyone mm -hmm. um, for their flaws and with their flaws as the world would see them. But I remember like talking to mom on the phone and just being like, I'm just seeing it as my role to like care for these people and witness to them and like be there for them. Um, and I ended up being like, they literally the whole floor called me mom and I like took care of all the, all these kids and helped them when they were homesick or sad, excuse me. And it was quite strange. <laughs> it was really weird. I got my first boyfriend. Um, and that was really, really weird. Cause I was like, is this, this is allowed? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, that wasn't like the healthiest relationship, but it was really good for me. He was someone that I was very comfortable talking to. And so I could just like straight up be like, what's going on with like this? Or like, what's, what's up with that? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like I've never been in a relationship before. Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and yeah, he like probably wasn't always honest with me, but I felt like our conversations were always really good. And I, I learned a lot about myself and what I'm like in a relationship and not. And I finally felt like I didn't have expectations. Like people didn't know who I was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and I think freshman year that freaked me out a lot, but I realized like, I didn't want to be in ministry. Like I thought about, like I, I joined a Bible study and I was like, this is like kind of a lot. <laughs> and I tried to like go to crew, but I was like, I can't like crew felt very much like middle school youth group to me. It mm -hmm. was like, all white it was all repetitive sermons it was it was nothing new it was nothing refreshing and it was nothing growth 
related. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is not what I want. <laughs> this yeah. is not what I want for me or my life. And so after that, I like, I found bits and pieces of like things to be kind of in ministry, but I just tried to figure out who I wanted to be and who I wanted to be perceived as. And I didn't stay friends with a lot of that friend group after freshman year because I realized like, I don't have the energy to take care of everyone (laughs) Mm. and I need to take care of myself. And I felt very, very selfish, but I think that's one of the best decisions that I made in college because I knew that that was a time where I needed to learn and grow and take care of myself. And I couldn't do that if I was taking care of everyone else. And I also realized that I was like trying to make them who I thought they should be. And I got sick of that. I was like, no, this doesn't feel right. Mm. So I just decided to kind of let it go. Was it weird for your identity after that? It was, I really floundered for a long time afterwards. Um, Sophomore year was really hard. Um, I distanced myself from a lot and struggled through one of the hardest years of my life um, to then realize like that I was just, I was leaving. So I went to, I went to Australia straight after my sophomore year of college. And so I knew going into that, that I would be leaving. And so I distanced myself from a lot of friends. And part of that I think was good because I kind of found myself. Um, I was in another relationship that was also probably not super healthy, (laughs) Um, but also pushed me to find myself and figure out what my values were and my boundaries were. He was not a Christian. um, And that caused a lot of strife in my relationship with particularly with mom. Um, Dad was more of the philosophy of just like, let her try it. Like let her, let her do what she needs to and struggle if she's, if she's going to, but mom was constantly like, why are you doing this? Do you even like, do you know what you want? What are your um, like deal breakers? How do you define that? Cause I, I finally landed on respect. Like he has to respect me. Cause like, you know, growing up, my deal breakers were, he has to believe the thing, same things I do. He has to be a good leader. He has to like, you know, not drink or smoke or whatever. And like, <laughs> I date, I date this, like, I don't even know how he would define himself, but like agnostic stoner as a sophomore in, <laughs> in college. And <laughs> mom kind of panicked um but he was there for me through some of the hardest points in my you know my life and that's when I started struggling with depression and he also struggled with depression had some really hard things go on and so like that helped me figure out like I need to be respected and then also figure out how I'm going to define respect because there are so many different definitions Um, And I think that that's, that was something where like the strife with mom really got to me because I I would tell her what I meant and she would be like, that's not real, (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of where I got more pushed to, to define for myself what I wanted and realized that it was not the same thing that what, as what mom and dad wanted for me. So I remember when you started dating him, um, dad was like, yeah, he's an atheist. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, how do you feel about that? And dad was like, well, I don't think he's the one. Um, <laughs> he's, but I was really proud of him when he said this. He said, to be honest, I think he will probably treat her better than a lot of Christian guys would. And I was shocked that he could wow. put that together. Um and was thankful for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's something mom really had in mind at the time, but I was surprised that dad said that. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I think I remember you said that you told me that before, but 
I always love being reminded of that. And for the most part, he did. Um, you know, it ended kind of ugly. And that was when I chose to walk away because that's when he stopped treating me really well. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, he treated me better than than anyone else. What was it like for you spiritually to be in a relationship with an atheist or an agnostic after a whole life of never expecting that? It was honestly pretty freeing. It was like, I finally realized that like people can be good and kind outside of Christianity like it wasn't like he was exhibiting the fruits of the spirit clearly because he wasn't you know trying to have a good relationship with the Holy Spirit or whatever you know like like people who are trying are always like I'm I'm trying to show the fruits whatever it's Mm -hmm. weird but you know people can be good and kind and smart and loving outside of Christ (laughs) and that was really like good and healthy for me to learn. And, and he pushed me to question it and it made me mad. Cause I was like, I do question what I believe and why I believe it, but I had always questioned within a box. <laughs> hmm. And so even though I didn't start questioning more of my faith until later, I, I do credit him for part of that where he made me think, <laughs> hmm. um, it really made me appreciate different pieces of culture and religion that were not within Christianity. Um, I remember at one point trying to figure out like if it was going to be long-term or forever or whatever. And like, no, I, I didn't think he was the one either, (laughs) but, um, and telling myself like, he's not going to love the same way that I love because I have Christly love. Mm. And that's not, and he has like a selfish love, like a human love. I remember like talking with my roommate about that and we were just like, yeah, like that's real. And now I'm like, he was working on self-love as well. And that was something that I was like not even thinking about. Like I, I accepted who I was, but I wasn't like trying to love myself, you know? Yeah. It was I think it was really good for me. I think it was important that I realized that there's a lot more out there, you know? Yeah, for sure. And very fitting that you were in that relationship pre-Australia. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) What did you discover in Australia? So many things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My boss was this amazing man So I I did an internship for context and my boss was this amazing man who had traveled to like 32 countries all over the world or more, maybe 60. I can't remember. He traveled the world for about 10 years and then in his early 30s returned to Australia to kind of fight the food system that had been created. He's like, we have the right to produce our own food and in countries in other countries, people are fighting for that right. He's like, mm. I want to hold on to it and utilize it in my home country. And so he came home and started a market garden. And that alone like earned him mad respect. But he was the most open and caring and understanding man that I had ever met, especially in that age bracket. And I was like, what in the world? <laughs> and... um it was just him and me. It was like, he was the boss and I was the intern and he had no employees. And so for eight weeks, we spent every day together for like eight hours. Mm. And me being who I am, I talked his ear off the whole time. (laughs) I don't know how he didn't get sick of me. Well, I know he did get sick of me sometimes. (laughs) He would like pawn me off to a couple of his friends and be like, teach Sophia this thing. And I'd be like, okay, (laughs) bye. Um, But I remember we were talking about, so like we were talking about faith and spirituality and truth and, and he was in his like questioning very much in in, like a questioning phase. And he actually grew up in a, I don't know, like 
I don't want to say like non-standard, but like in, in a very like open and questioning environment. And so like, he didn't grow up in, in like a strong religion, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, Aaron, like, what do you, what do you believe? Like, what is truth? And he was like, you know, I listen when people tell me their truth and I listen to it as if it is truth, as if it is whole truth. And that way I can hear them because they are telling me what their truth is. And he said, and then later I'll go through and, and sort it out and whatever, figure out what I believe and whatnot. But basically that there are different perspectives of the same truth. Hmm. And so that's when I started looking at truth as a prism. Hmm. I like to picture it this way, where, where you have a prism and it's, oh, you hold it up to the sun and from every different angle, it's going to look different. And one person will say it's red and one person will say it's green and one person will say it's blue and none of them are wrong hmm. <laughs> because it's a prism and there's so many intricate aspects to it. And like for me, like for me, if I see blue and someone says it's red, I'm going to be like, no, it's not. That's not true. Mm-hmm. But it is because that's what they see and that's what their truth is. And so like that's when, that's kind of when I started really being like, huh, there's more to this than like the one and only truth, you know? And like I, I remember talking to mom about it too and just like her being like, no, like there is absolute truth. And I'm like... I don't know if there is anymore, <laughs> you know, like yeah. what is absolute truth and is it something that humans can ever grasp? Cause I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think I can. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe people do think they can, but I think that's really full of ourselves because <laughs> <laughs> I think the world is so much bigger and deeper and intricate than we could ever comprehend. Yeah. So that's, that's the biggest, I think, takeaway for me, spirituality wise from Australia. Well, I know you also found a church that you really loved and that has been a very rare occurrence in your life. Yeah, that's true. That was, that was crazy. I actually visited like, I don't know, five or six different churches and finally settled on one and felt at home within like a week. (laughs) And I was like, this is amazing. Like these people are authentic and real and loving and accepting and human. And, and it was, it was incredible to like find a church like that. Like, like my pastor took us on a motorcycle ride up to the mountains to go (laughs) and, and work the calves on his dad's farm. (laughs) And like, it's like, these are humans. And I think that's what I loved most about it. Um, you know, I really missed the community of church and missed like having a place where I fit. And so then to like find a church that I fit into felt really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I still questioned, like, I think I knew that I still, I still believed it. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I questioned that it was the absolute, I think. Hmm. And, you know, I struggled more with depression in Australia uh, a lot. And that was really hard for me to reconcile because I was like, I am literally living my dream. Why am I depressed? You know, and I had always kind of viewed mental health as like a, a just a, a problem but realizing that it, it is like an illness and it's something that, I don't know, it's something that people struggle with no matter how good or bad their situation is. I think that yeah. was another thing that I had to like take away and be like, okay, it's not going to be great. Like, like my spiritual life felt really good, but I was really depressed. And so like, that was, that was weird to like have at the same time. Yeah. I feel like in most Christian circles that's seen as something that's not possible right yeah because like when I struggled with depression in Berea you know I I was dating the guy who who didn't believe in God and I was like maybe that's part of it you know Mm -hmm. and and mom for sure thought it was and 
yeah than when I was like depressed in Australia and I'm like no I'm I'm living my dream life like yeah (laughs) this is real yeah I'm glad you're able to come to that realization yeah me too it was a good lesson to learn that early in life I mean I was 21 and I know it's something that I'm going to struggle with probably the rest of my life. And so it's good to figure out how to accept who I am and where I'm at and move forward from there. Yeah. What was it like coming back from Australia? Horrible. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I really like, I had built a whole community of people who understood everything that I'm passionate about when I was working at my internship. And I was able to maintain that, those friendships throughout my time at university over there as well. And so it was six months of like having people who understood why I do what I do and why I love what I love. And um, I came home and I spent two months in the UP Mm. and people were like, you didn't die over there, you know, because spiders and snakes and alligators, oh my, or crocs, I guess, but, (laughs) um, and, and then they didn't care, and they didn't ask, and Mm -hmm. they didn't invest (laughs) in, like, sustainable community food systems, you know, like, it, it was very, I had more culture shock coming home than going because I fit in so well with the culture I landed in when I went. And then when I came back, I was like, felt very alone and very misunderstood. And I think too, like, that's when I started questioning a lot of um, American culture Um, from over there. I came back and then was like, wow, um, so capitalism is exploiting you to the point where you can't even afford to care about your food systems. Yeah. Um, and you can't think about things and you can't care and you're exhausted and you can't go to the doctor. And like, I sprained my ankle over in Australia and it wasn't like really bad, but I like wrapped it for several days and had crutches for like a day that somebody had lended me. And everyone was like, well, did you go to the doctor? I was like, no, like, it's fine. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, I could have gone to the doctor and like had it looked at and like it would have actually been like really beneficial because I had insurance over there Mm. and like insurance that would like cover for their healthcare, which is like free healthcare. And so I was like, oh my word, like I should have just gone to the doctor, you know, but then I come back to the US and I, I like, my knee hurts so bad that I can't get out of bed one day. And I'm like, I'm just gonna wait it out and see if it'll go away (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I can't afford to go to the doctor and I can't afford to take time off work to go to the doctor. And I can't afford to get knee surgery because if I get knee surgery, then I can't work. And I'm like, (laughs) I was, I was having that complex the other day or existential crisis or whatever where I was thinking about all the things that I know how to do and none of them are sedentary Mm. and I'm like everything I'm qualified for makes me exploit my body for labor yeah and I'm like yeah like I've got a bachelor's I could probably get like some kind of editing gig or something like I could figure something out but everything that I have experience for and I'm qualified for like (laughs) nah I gotta be it's manual labor and so I just started to get I guess people would say cynical um when I came back from Australia because I was like this is not how life should be lived yeah yeah I saw that for sure it's really, I think it is very valid and very sad that you can get that taste of something much better, but no one will believe you. Yeah. 
I was in a, a microeconomics class my first semester back at Berea, and I, the professor hated me because um, <laughs> I would just argue with him because I'm like, no, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. It was his first like teaching gig out of college. And I would sit there, I was in microeconomics and I was in environmental economics at the same time. Mm-hmm. And environmental economics dealt with a lot of like ethical issues of economics and race issues of economics and all of that kind of stuff. And so I would sit there before class because I'd get there early and I'd read my like capitalism versus the climate textbook. (laughs) And then I would close it and set it on the desk and just like make eye contact with the professor when he started (laughs) teaching. And I like, I took the most detailed notes in that class and it was boring as everything. I hated that class so much, but like, he'd be like, this is how, um, minimum wages work and blah 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 and like raising the minimum wage does this 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 and this and I was like then how do you explain all of the countries that pay a living wage Mm -hmm. and he was like well those aren't those aren't real and I'm like you're not real Mm -hmm. um (laughs) yeah I was I was talking to a guy at that time as well a different one um (laughs) keep in mind this is over three years it's not like (laughs) Oh, the last boys. Nah. But I was talking to a guy and he was in the same class and I would make eye contact with him. Like the professor would be talking and I'd make eye contact with him and he could just read my face like a book and he'd shake Mm -hmm. his head like, don't do it today, please. (laughs) (laughs) Then I just keep eye contact and I'd raise my hand and then I'd look at the professor like, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't doing this. Uh I was, I think that's part of when I started learning that being problematic could be fine Mm. like I still aced the class I had like a really great grade in there but like I wasn't about to just sit back and let him spew whatever propaganda economics in the U.S. is you know like I don't (laughs) I'm like yeah I'm gonna sit here and listen and I like I aced the class so I learned every concept and I could graph every concept and all of the stuff but I was like I don't believe any of it Mm. I like we were doing a, a game and this is like a whole sidetrack off of spirituality, but <laughs> we were, we were doing a game, like a class game or whatever. And we were, everyone owned a gas station. And if your price was higher than the average, then you lost money. And if your price was lower than the average, then you gained money. But if the average was really low, then everybody lost money. And it was just some nonsense, but like, I he was like okay you guys can all talk for three minutes and I was like obviously the loudest one in the class like at this point and so I was like okay and I organized it so that everybody got the most profit and customers always had access to cheap gas (laughs) and we're like okay do the game and we did the game and some people still screwed everyone over to like get more profit and I was like okay you I hate and you I hate and you I hate (laughs) But we still, like, did everything fine. And then he goes, so, Sophia, you're in jail. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, that was collusion. Mm. And I was like, what? And he's like, that's not allowed in the U.S. And I was like, literally, like, I thought I won capitalism because I got everybody good profit and everybody cheap prices. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't allowed. And so... Mm that was part of, I'm like, okay, the whole system is fraud and I hate it all. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's part of where, when I got like, I think that whole situation is like, I got bitter coming back from Australia, realizing like one, all the spirituality stuff that I had believed may or may not be a lie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And all of the like cultural stuff I believed may or may not be a lie. And I was like, okay, so nothing is real. Okay. When did you take your Buddhism class? That I believe was my first semester of senior year of college. Okay. So that was my second to last semester of college. And I actually took that one at the same time as I took a foundations of Christianity class. It was quite interesting. I like learned about like pluralism and all kinds of different like pieces of Christianity and some that are like more accepting than others 
And then I learned about Buddhism at the same time and saw so many more truths than I had been exposed to. Truths in the like subjective way, of course. Mm-hmm. But I was like, this all makes a lot more sense to me mm-hmm. than what I was taught to believe of like absolute truth. Yeah. yeah I remember that being a big deal for you to kind of take that class and learn about those principles of Buddhism. And I also remember it being a very scary thing for our parents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember having a lot of conversations with mom and being like, look at this cool thing and this cool thing. And her just being kind of like, that's great, honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but it just, like Buddhism explains the world a lot better. And like, I don't say that lightly in like Buddhism has so many different sects and so many different practices and so many different things that like it's using Buddhism as an overarching term almost feels wrong <laughs> to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at this point I haven't like looked back into my studies of it for quite a while. And so I can't, remember like which is which kind of thing um but just it just explained the human experience a lot better to me and made it feel more okay to be human Mm -hmm. (laughs) and more okay to fail even though like there are still repercussions to that but it was like I don't know it, it just felt more natural for me to like understand those beliefs yeah so wrapping up college and then moving into your first year outside of college was obviously a pretty rough time globally as well because that's when COVID hit um do you remember any specific pieces of this past year that were especially impactful in your spiritual journey or Christian deconstruction? I, after graduating, you know, took the internship on the ranch in Wyoming. And that was, it's kind of a part-time gig. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like 30 hours a week. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands or so it felt like because I went from, you know, 7 a.m. to midnight every day in college to like, 30 hours a week working and then having nothing else going on. Um, And because of COVID, everything was still shut down. So I wasn't like going to go out and do things. So I intentionally took that time to educate myself on politics and race issues and a little bit more on like spirituality and stuff. Although I'll admit I didn't do tons of like reading and stuff, just some more soul searching. I don't remember a specific like turning point to it. I just remember being like, if this is what Christians fight against, then I'm not with them Mm. because, you know, with, with George Floyd and, and with all of the stuff going on with BLM and all of that, I, I have always had a very, very strong sense of justice and fairness and, that's something that even as a kid, like anything that wasn't fair or just, I hated. And, and I felt like that was encouraged and embraced by mom and dad, but then like, but then seeing how the conservative world reacted to the pandemic so selfishly and how they reacted to um, all of the Donald Trump things and how they basically worshiped this political figure who was nothing like they claimed to support and how they disregarded the pain and suffering of entire people groups and, and like people of color and the queer community and all of that. Like, I just remember being like, if, if this is it, if this is what Christians support, (laughs) then I'm not there. And I actually had a conversation with dad in the fall at like the end of my internship. It was like in September. And 
because you know mom and dad came to visit and then they were all concerned for my existence because I had been (laughs) radical all summer and so (laughs) they were like talking about it and and I don't remember how it started but I remember telling dad I'm like the god that I was taught about the god that I supposedly knew if he is hateful enough to condemn people to hell because they're born brown (laughs) because they're born gay because they're born in communities that don't like support Christianity as the default Hmm. if he is that that's not what I want or believe and I don't believe that the God that I know that I knew and loved growing up is that yeah and so I'm like You know, because so much of what you believe as a faith is a lottery. It's so connected Mm -hmm. to just where you're born and how you're raised that if that much of it is a lottery, I don't believe in a God that's going to condemn everyone to hell who's born in India because they're going to believe in Buddhism. Because, you know, we were always taught to like, you know, cultures that have never been exposed to Christ you know, natives who are tucked in the middle of the woods and have never been given the story of Christ. We were always taught that, you know, they could go to heaven if they saw God in nature and believed. Hmm. And I'm like, isn't that everyone though? Isn't that like, don't people think that they see God and believe? Isn't that what faith is? Even if it doesn't look like what you believe, even even if it doesn't look like what we're taught to believe like isn't that god <laughs> like mm. and so i remember having a conversation with dad in like september about that and i was like i don't believe in a god that would condemn people to hell just because of the lottery of how they were born and i think i'm i'm sure i freaked him out but he did a very good job of being like that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> so i was like not about to have that conversation with mom she was like off in the camper brushing her teeth or something um but I was like, that's, that's where I'm at. And, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like, I don't know what I believe, but I don't believe that God's going to condemn people for the lottery of how they were born. We've definitely come a long way since childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything in particular that you're especially thankful to leave behind? I think the judgment, leaving behind the, the judgment of the community and the fear of condemnation for being who I am. Mm. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm very excited to leave that behind. And, and I still face it because I'm still connected to you know, those, those communities, like, like I'll post a picture on Instagram of me in like a cute top and I'll get slut shamed because it shows my cleavage. And I'm like, like, I don't care. This is my body and I love who I am and I'm gorgeous and that's okay. That's not a sin. It's not evil. And so like, I, I still face it, but I don't, internalize it as much anymore and I'm learning how not to and I think Mm. that's part of what I'm like really excited to let go of as I move forward yeah I'm excited for that for you too thanks is there anything you miss oh for sure (laughs) (laughs) I miss the simplicity um I think that comes from gaining knowledge and empathy um it's a lot harder to have a positive outlook on life when I see all of the hardships, including the ones that I'm not experiencing. Mm. And I miss the community. Um, I miss like having a group of people that you automatically agree with, that you would just like walk into a random building anywhere in the world and agree with them. Um, I kind of miss that. And I really miss, I miss like youth retreats. And, like, that experience of, like, (laughs) existing with, like, 60 other people your same age and, like, being able to make friends and get to know people and all of that. Like, I miss that. And I know that that kind of exists in other realms with, like, different hobbies and stuff. But 
that's not really something that like I can really do very easily especially in my career I can't just like take a weekend off (laughs) or take a week off or whatever but I miss that I've had similar experiences at like conferences for my career um where it's just like you can sit down and have an amazing conversation with somebody about stuff you're passionate about it's like you know you can you can go to a conference within your career (laughs) yeah and, and do that especially for me like I'm so passionate about what I do um I know like that's not how everyone lives their life but I'm very thankful to like you know I can find a community within that it's just not like localized very easily yeah that aspect of community is very difficult in adulthood what would you like to say to those who are worried about young people leaving the church (laughs) um a lot of things (laughs) um stop making the church a place that hurts them Mm. and stop making the church a place that hates them and a place that doesn't feel safe or loving or knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. You know, it. you encourage people to go and get an education and better their life. And as soon as they do, you call them brainwashed <laughs> and are so mad that they're questioning things. If your religion or your faith or your spirituality is beyond question, then what are you so afraid of? Oof. That's big. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for laying it all out there for us. I know it takes a lot of energy, um, but I think it's important. And I really appreciate I you being willing to do that. Thanks for having me. It was, yeah. it was good. I haven't taken a lot of time to articulate my thoughts or process a lot of it lately just with like a new job and stuff so I appreciate the opportunity yeah always all right so I will talk to you again soon I love you sounds good love you too